Here they come! Welcome to episode 50 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and to celebrate reaching this landmark number, I'm joined today by Roger Christian. Roger came to the notice of science fiction fans when working on the original Star Wars, where, as set dresser with a very meagre budget, he had to find a way of detailing the likes of the Millennium Falcon interior and coming up with the weaponry with very little money. He came up with the genius idea of raiding scrapyards to repurpose junk into detail, creating an aesthetic in science fiction films still used to this day. It was him too that had the idea of adapting existing World War weapons into the blasters that we know so well, and we have him to thank for coming up with the no silver ray guns look for them. He was also responsible for the first mock-up of R2-D2, and he's the father of the lightsaber as we know it, as he's the bloke that came up with the idea of using a flashbulb handle for them. His work on the film led to him being hired by Ridley Scott as art director on Alien, where he carried that used universe look to the next level. I'm a massive fan of his work, I have the hugest respect for his talent, and I'm very pleased that he joined me for this. Come on, come on! Switch over. Let's hope we don't have a burnout. Hello, Roger. Hello, Eric. Very nice to meet you. Uh, virtually meet you. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> I just want to start off by saying thanks for coming along today. Um, I, I wanted to mark this 50th episode with a special episode and a special guest. Um, now, my two favorite modern science fiction films are Star Wars and Alien. Um, and that's partly because of the story, partly because of the characters, but it's mainly because of the universe, the universes that were up there on the screen. They were gritty, realistic worlds that I was fascinated by. And you are one of those responsible. Yeah, I was indeed. Both films. Yeah, we <laughs> we um, the first Star Wars that I met George in Mexico. We were working on a film called Lucky Lady, mm -hmm. and it was set in the 1930s rum running period in America. And we were taking um, Mexican old sets and old buildings and converting them into what would be the rum runners' places. Um, and when George got the it wasn't a green light. Fox analyzed Star Wars that he brought in and said it would make $12 million. And if they divided it by three and said, if you can make your film for $4 million, then we'll consider making it. Mm -hmm. And Gloria and Willard Hike wrote Lucky Lady, which we were working on, and they were student friends of George's, and they helped him do some character work with C-3PO and other things. So they said to George, you better go down and meet John Barry and Roger Christian and see what they're doing because you're talking about this dusty cowboy-like space film. They're doing what you want. And Fox in England had said they were half the price then <laughs> in budget to what it would cost in America. So George flew down, you know, in a car ride, and there's George in his plaid shirt and sneakers. You know, we were all like students, really. I, I still regarded myself, even though I was getting on in the industry. 
Um, and that was our discussion. He looked at what I was doing. It was an old salt factory and said, wow, and it was a set. He didn't mm. believe it. And that was a conversation over, you know, my, my opinion. I said, I really didn't like science fiction till then. I really didn't connect to the universe like Flash Gordon. It's, you know, it's all fun, but you don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And George said, no, I want a dusty real world. I don't want anything to stand out. And I said, well, you know, I, I think spaceships should be like old cars that have been repaired and they're dripping oil. Mm. And that was it. And we got hired turned up, John Barry and I, and one art director, Les Dilly, we turned up in London, and they'd hired a tiny studio called Lee Studios, which Ken Russell used to make his films there. And in Kensal Rise, it's gone now. We literally spent four months before Fox greenlit the film, being paid by George out of his pocket, so we nothing, and there was no money to make anything, nothing. Mm-hmm. And we spent those four months when we, I read the script and John, we thought, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I'm going to make this huge epic of $4 million budget. But um, John Barry took George to Tunisia because he'd worked there. He designed Little Prince. And as soon as George saw, there was Tatooine as – because we had six paintings by Ralph Macquarie. That was the only reference we had and whatever George talked about. There was nowhere else to go. And there was Tatooine in Tunisia, you know, in these old buildings. And we said, we'll just put some sticks and bits in it. George knew then he had a film. And we built, we hired a carpenter who used to make Monty Python's, um, both their sets and special effects and their props. Mm -hmm. And they really had no money. I mean, you know, it's legendary. They couldn't even afford horses, so they had coconut yeah, shies, sure. <laughs> shells. So um, Bill had some plywood at home, and reading the script, we realized very quickly that R2-D2 and C-3PO were the storytellers. They're the narrators. We knew we could do C-3PO because Fritz Lang had done it with Metropolis, so you just get the right actor. You could build it around, and not easy, but we knew we could do it. But mm. having a robot under four feet high that worked and and radio control in those days was really primitive it wasn't anything that you could rely on so we built bill bought some wood in at home we didn't even have money to buy wood i mean it's literally like that so <laughs> bill bought some marine ply in and we built it around kenny baker because he was the one only one who was strong enough and the right height he was three foot eight kenny Mm-hmm. and um, I found an old lamp top because Bill couldn't make the top. I found one in a scrap heap in the uh, Lee's Electrics they'd thrown out. It was a 1930s and 1940s film lamp, mm-hmm. and uh, we cut that out, stuck it on the top, and I was buying scrap bits and pieces. I already started like a magpie. And I was going to say, where, where, when did this start, this you know, going through the, <clears throat> the bins thing? That started then because I, I I went down to a place called Trading Post and I could rent or buy old scrap and I, I found those aircraft nozzles that I stuck in R2-D2 and they're still there to this day. <laughs> and uh, he had a knife and fork. I carved that at home with a pen knife um, one night and we 
started building him like that and I looked at my weapons list that I had to make because that was under my jurisdiction as set decorator and uh, I thought you know what I can't a I can't build guns we can't afford to do the conventional studio route and I just thought you know what I'm gonna go I did this on my own I didn't tell George John nobody I went to the gun hire place mm-hmm. who knew me very well Baptist there they gave me a Sterling submachine gun because that's my favorite. And I stuck these T-strip around it and stuck some old aircraft sights that I found in boxes they had in the back rooms. Mm. And I thought, that looks pretty cool. And not only that, it can fire and you get a flame out the front because my other pet peeve was guns that kind of beeped and looked like plastic toys. Mm. And then George's was always going on about Han Solo being a Western star. So... Um, I found the Mauser that I loved, and I thought if ever there was a gun that was a science fiction gun that was really like a cowboy's gun, it was the Mauser. So again, I I got my super glue. I stuck sights on the top. I found a flash uh, hider. It was a thing you stuck on the end of a barrel, and it stopped the flash being seen Mm. at night. Stuck that on the front, and I thought, you know what? These are pretty cool. So I, I called John Barry and said, you better bring George here. What I didn't say was, well, this is it, really. Either I'm going to be fired <laughs> or he'll think I'm on the right track. Mm. And George just loved them. And he stayed with me and we made – he got fingers covered in super glue with me and we made Princess Leia's gun together, sticking bits on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's George. That's how he does things. So I then knew I was on the right track and I did all the weapons like that. And George was very open. I, I found the bowcaster. Because in the original Macquarie paintings, he had a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that bowcaster with the balls on the end. And I thought, you know what? And having seen the, the painting, and we hadn't built him then, Chewbacca, but seeing the painting, I thought this would be really cool. And George changed the script. And he then had that kind of crossbow weapon that fired. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where it started. And, you know, long discussions with John Barry about the sets and he he was finding ways to build the sets. In fact, when he came back from Tunisia, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi had a huge cave complex. They couldn't afford to do it. John and George together put it down to one simple room. Mm-hmm. I think that actually improved the film. I think he's a Buddhist kind of jedi and so you know simplicity was the answer and still before christmas i one day before we went to emi before the crew started fox only greenlit the film actually said they'd given the four million in in december late december right before christmas i kind of went up to john and george and said look i've got an idea you know the millennium falcon i think should look like a cross between a submarine and obviously we'd looked at silent running and the way that looked and i said i think if i buy scrap airplane junk break it down and stick it into there i could make this look like a a really old but functioning spaceship and the same with a cockpit and instead of firing me they agreed (laughs) (laughs) and said okay we'll try it you say in your book that it was uh, the producer, Robert Watts, 
who found the yes. air, airplane scrapyards for you. Yes. And he, I, I, I can't, I'm trying, trying to struggle in that, in that pre-internet age when all you've really got is the yellow pages. How on earth do you find out where an airplane scrapyard is? Well, Robert was a, a very seasoned production manager and production coordinator. And what he very quickly found out through phone calls was that all of the big airplane scrapyards were right attached to airfields. Mm-hmm. So they, right after Christmas, when we first got green lit, the first thing I ever did in winter, we got in a little Cessna prop plane, Robert Watson, myself, and my buyer, and we flew around each aerodrome, and there were four of them, and I, I think we were Birmingham, I think we were somewhere else up north, somewhere in Gloucestershire. You, I and think you each, said one was in Norfolk, I think. One was in Norfolk, yeah, right. that's right. Um, and th- this was dragging deep in my memories to remember where on earth we were. I'd love to go <laughs> around and see if I can find they're probably still there. And you know, the first place I went into, there was a mountain literally of scrap. I just went, Whoa, and there were jet engines. <clears throat> and the thing is that airplane scrap was sold by weight, right? Any metal, so they're really light. So I could buy, like, I was buying like an airplane engine, a scrap one for. 25 pounds and i was buying half an airplane 50 pounds it was amazing (laughs) so i bought like i could see the potential in the in the jet engines they were beautiful and then i was buying undercarriage gear and then i would buy galleys where all of those containers that they heat the food in and keep it Mm -hmm. those i bought tons of they're all over star wars (laughs) all over tunisia (laughs) and then i was buying like the funk you know the old galley kind of switches Mm-hmm. cockpits, everything like that. I was just buying masses, and in each single airfield was slightly different. And I bought at least two, like, 16-wheel trailer loads. Blimey. Um, and I was crossing my fingers. You know, I mean, I, you know, you make these statements, and suddenly you're in the middle of it, and you're doing it. And I thought, <laughs> I hope this bloody works. So um, it, when we started building the sets obviously john did and he built the two that i got stuck into first were the millennium falcon cockpit and the big hold area where the chess game was yeah and um i think i said it in the book i was you know the day it came frank bruton was the big prop master and he was in charge of um of like Kubrick's films and David Lean's films, he could shift armies and everything. You know, and he mm-hmm. said, what do you want, boy? He called me boy. We were so young. <laughs> what do you want, boy? And I said, I need you to clear your prop room right out. None of this. There's no curtains and no furniture, no paintings. He said, all right, boy. He cleared it out. And the day that I got the call said, your first 16-wheeler of scrap is backing in. <laughs> I went down, and there literally was jet engines piled high. I mean, all this junk. Frank Bruton came down. He's standing next to me, and this thing backs in, and he, he just says, you know, you're mad, boy. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I am really. But Frank, bless him, he just said, okay, boy, tease on in my office, 10 minutes, tell me what you want me to do. And he put on an army for me to break it down. We got tools and we broke them down. And I explained that airplanes aren't just random. You don't stick it anywhere. Each airplane submarine has two or three of the same in case there's failures. And we mm. made, and I have a kind of engineering sensibility 
I think that's what gave me the ability to do this. And um, so I taught them how to do it. And we, we made different bins down there. And then we had to teach the draftsmen who were used to you draw it up and off it goes into the carpenter shop and the plaster shop and the metal shop and it comes out and gets made. Here, they had to go down and pick pieces and draw them into the sets. Um, so is that yeah so i was going to say so was it a case of that looks good that's a nice centerpiece part yep. where we put yep. that on the wall and now we've got to dress around it that sort of thing yes and i also thought you know any any ship i've seen any submarine anything like that there's pipe work everywhere so my buyer bought me pvc drain pipes piping from like half an inch pipe up to we even found three foot which i think are sewer pipes and things like that right. in pvc i had i had racks of this stuff standing up and we take that and just put it in and join it so that there were conduit running through mm-hmm. um and i just started to dress and, and they put harry lang on the millennium falcon cockpit so he was really the the one who did a lot of the drawing and making of the sets on 2001. Mm -hmm. So he did it slightly that way. I mean, it was quite functional and clean and it looked really good. And then I was, had to come in to dress it and I completely messed it up. (laughs) And I bought some um, fighter pilot ejector seats, you know, and again, I I was buying them for like 10 pounds or something. It was stupid. So those went in, that's what's in the cockpit, the millennium Mm -hmm. Falcon. And they had straps on them. And then I had to find air crane scrap pieces from undercarriages and, and other functioning pieces where the uh, controls are for the plane lifting off and things. Mm-hmm. So I had to make those levers that C-3PO and um, – uh, sorry, uh, uh, Chewbacca and Han Solo are working to go into hyperspace. I had to get all those rigged up and then I just started to mess it up and put in more piping and stuff so that it looked more lived in and used. And and the Millennium Falcon hold just went on and on. I just I was worried we were I was buying more scrap. When you start layering it, it just disappears on you. And the prop <laughs> men they all had their drills, you know, they're so used to doing <laughs> furniture and curtains they had their drills and they were sticking stuff up they soon got used to the way to do it with me mm-hmm. um and then eventually when you've got it all in then we started to age it a bit with oils and and carefully dusting and spraying bits of paint and stuff like mm-hmm. that there it was it suddenly i thought wow this looks really good george loved them i mean they they looked like a working functioning you know spacecraft Mm. yeah sure and that carried on you know i had to get a ton of stuff assembled for tunisia and um um we persuaded john barry to buy a machine that was a very early back press it was a lot it was ten thousand pounds which was way beyond his budget but Mm -hmm. they printed out panels for the death star right and they were stapled on onto wooden frames it made doing big sets cheap Mm mm-hmm and I took, because I had one of the worst jobs I had to do was the um, that huge crash spaceship outside the cantina. Wasn't that there to cover something up? Wasn't that there? No, there was to... one tree in that entire ah. set, and it spoiled it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and Ralph had painted a crash ship 
onto one of the early paintings he did. So we thought, well, you know, well, that would give scale and it would be pretty cool to have that. So mm-hmm. the, the carpenters built me a wooden frame and I literally took Death Star panels and stapled them up and I took a blowtorch and started aging and burning them all until all right. I got it looking like crash metal. Blimey. Yeah. I, I just, sorry, so, sorry, I was just going to say, I, I've got... Ha- all, all this scrap, you know, that you were using in Tunisia, was that, did that come by plane or, or did it come truck. by boat or what? Or by truck, truck. right? Blimey. Yeah, they thought I was mad. They say, why? Wow, you've almost got a truck full of scrap. You're taking it to Tunisia. And I said, yeah, this, <laughs> Tunisia is a hot country and it's a very poor country at the time. Anything like this is used. So mm. there wasn't any. So I'm taking, and Frank Bruton had those trucks, and he was brilliant at this. He had a whole army of trucks that had to go through seven continents with all the paperwork for customs and then by boat from Genoa down to Tunisia. Right. Um, So that all came. And then I built enough of those vaporizers that I dressed and I had enough airplane containers and all the scrap I needed. And that traveled with me as soon as one set was finished. Like an early one that took a lot of scrap was the, um, sand crawlers uh, vehicle the big mm-hmm. the, the huge one we built on mm-hmm. the edge of the desert um and that homestead right as well and we split the homestead because in map Marta, when george saw the underground they're like a thousand years old they live underground because it's mm-hmm. warmer in winter and cooler in summer and when he saw that that's what was there all that painting in the ceiling and the, yeah, the sure. uh, we left all that we just added some panels that we very carefully stuck onto the walls and then I put in the table and, and I used a lot of Tupperware. It was fairly new in those days and it, it was quite unique in its looks. So the, the blue milk was in Tupperware and um, yeah. all of those things. So that all of that stuff, I had a trucks that moved with us because we were all over Tunisia on location. Mm-hmm. And we could only afford a limited amount, so I would just move it up to the next one, redress it, move it to the next one. Right, right. I was going to mention about the Tupperware. That was a question. Is that oh, right. when you look at that now, as you say, you, you say in your book that Tupperware was pretty new and you used it, and it, it, it was kind of like groovy and futuristic. But do you look at that now and go, ow, that's Tupperware? <laughs> I don't, because I think it was cool enough to work. It kind of looked right in those sets. And I think, you know, George always said the mistake directors have made before him was they you have a plastic cup. You go, wow, look at this plastic cup. Look at this plastic gun. He never he filmed it like a documentary. Mm. So nothing stands out. It just blends into a used universe. Yeah, that's what I like so much about it. Nothing's explained. It's all just up there on the screen, and you, you know, yeah. you just go along with the ride, don't you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's classic that the um, in the Death Star was more difficult because that had to be more kind of evil, two thousand and one like, mm. um, and that first big conference room. I didn't really want to dress it. It looked so, it was very much like uh, Spears architecture that the Nazis had, Hmm. simple. And um, so I thought, you know, I need a communication thing in the center of the table. And I I searched and searched and found a heater, a floor heater that was round. And I cut the wire off, had the 
paint shop spray and a beautiful matching black to the set, and I stuck mm-hmm. that into the center of the table, and I thought, wow, that's it. And we just had to put some kind of – they were um, a more kind of rubber and metal drinking vessel that I'd found from somewhere. Those went around, and really that was it. Right. That's all I dressed it with, and I think that, again – it just was appropriate. It didn't stand out. You didn't think, what is that? You just no, it, accept that it's there. And it just matched everything else that was around it, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Did you dress the uh, trash compactor? I did. You? Right. Yeah, everything. That was a nightmare because we we had a, a tank in the studio, you know, the mm-hmm. tanks where they fill with water. So I knew, first of all, I knew we had actors in wading about in water so I couldn't use metal junk because they could have got hurt, and, and we had grips either side pushing the walls in. And mm-hmm. There was nothing electronic in those days. And I thought, wow, they can get hurt. So I had to have soft kind of scrap as much as I could, but it didn't bend or anything. So and polystyrene, as we had then, was always like the best thing to do. My problem with it was if it broke, you just saw white. You've got all the white Um, beads, don't you? (laughs) You do. So I found a way to inject it and get it that that wouldn't happen. And I used a lot of that. I used a lot of rubber scrap. I placed the softer things that I knew wouldn't get near the actors and placed those in there. That went on for ages. Again, it was a bit of a nightmare. And then, then in the script, Harrison's... And Solo gets a bar, and he's trying to hold the doors apart. Well, I got two of my drain pipes, and I got a piece that joined drain pipes together. It was so long, it just bent the whole time, and I mm-hmm. couldn't get it straight. I tried everything. So that one, I just went to Harrison and said, you know, I, I really need you to help me here. I've done everything I can to get this. It doesn't work. So he acted that. He held it up for me and oh, made right. it work. Yeah, oh. bless him. <laughs> He was cool like that. You know, he, he's very practical, Harrison. Mm, yeah. I, I, I find it hilarious, you know, that you one of your jobs that you had on this is actually dressing a scrapyard because effectively that's what the trash compactor is and you're dressing yep. a scrapyard. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm dressing a scrapyard with scrap. Yeah, that's ironic, yeah. <laughs> and I had to make it look real, you know, and you had to make it look like it was full of scrap and everything. So it, it took a lot, that one, I have to say. Mm. And then obviously that it, um, couldn't afford a creature. They couldn't make a creature <laughs> underneath. So it just had that little eyes, the piece mm. that popped up. But in a way that it's like Jaws. In a way, the restrictions I think made that yeah, much yeah, more yeah. powerful because you couldn't see it. You didn't know what was under there. Yeah, sure, sure. All right. So, yeah. um. That's Star Wars. I don't want to take up too much of your okay. time today, Roger. So can we fast forward a couple of years to Alien? Sure. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. Now, you got the Alien gig, I'm presuming, because Ridley Scott was so impressed by Star Wars and how that universe looked. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I knew Ridley. I used to do commercials. I used to art direct commercials for him and Tony. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew them very well. And um, I was on Life of Brian 
So I couldn't join the team. He, you know, Michael Seymour, who'd done Ridley's commercials, who'd never actually done a sci-fi film before, he came on board and designed it for um, for Ridley. Mm-hmm. And Les Dilly came on board because Les was brilliant at Les was a plaster as apprentice, and he came through a plaster shop, so he knew how to get molded the most difficult things that most people didn't know how to do. And he was there in charge, and I was on Life of Brian. I couldn't join, and so they hired a young kid, basically, who'd never worked on a film before. He said, oh, I can do that with scrap. I know what Roger Christian did, and tried to do it, and <laughs> it was failing. When I went on, I could see it takes, it takes more than just I can do that. It takes a lot of... As I said, I, I have a kind of DNA that works that way practically. You know, my right. father made me before I, he got me a motorbike. He got me an old hand-changed Royal Enfield thing, and I had to break it down and rebuild it. And the car, the same. He made me do stuff like that. Um, and we were two weeks from going to Tunisia. I had everything packed up. My apartment rented everything. When um, Lord Delfont read the script to Life of Brian and cancelled it that afternoon. I said, this is blasphemy. I'm not making this. Boom. Mm. I was called to John Goldstone, the producer's office, um, and was told all the news. And they said, look, we are going to get it made. We're working on it now. So we want you to keep going with us. Um, but it's going to be a few months. And I got a call that day from Ridley saying, get your backside down to Shepparton now. I need you here. Mm-hmm. So I drove straight to Shepparton, met Ridley. They put me in a room and said, read the script. I read it in 90 minutes. It's one of those scripts that you just read. And I thought, wow. And I, I was in Ridley's office with the original Giga paintings all around the wall. <laughs> and knowing Ridley, and I saw some of his Ridley grams, they'd got him locked in a room doing those. Mm-hmm. Um, I just knew something was <laughs> this would be a chance to get something really special as well. So mm-hmm. I joined, I mean, immediately went to see what this kid, the scrap, and he got a few bits and pieces that nothing was right. So I got the buyer and said, talk to my buyer. This is what we do. We need to get a ton of scrap in here. I mean, this is five times bigger than the Star Wars sets that I had to make. Mm-hmm. Um, what Michael had done brilliantly with Ridley was take two stages at Shepparton that were joined they were two big stages and they made the Nostromo over the two stages. And you literally had to go in one area and you had to walk through the ship. You couldn't get out. It was just brilliant. <laughs> and when I joined, it was just wooden formers, wooden frames. They got that all up. And then in discussions, um, <clears throat> Ridley had said, you know, he had, to, he was fighting the studio to have Sigourney Weaver in the lead. Right. And um, so, uh, he said he wanted to do a screen test in a piece of the Nostroma. So I said, and it was agreed, that would be a chance for me to use the scrap to make the look and show Ridley as well and Michael to see how it works. So they quickly built a piece of the corridor, and I went and dressed it. That's on YouTube, her, her test. Yeah, I've seen it. I think it's on, on the Blu-ray as well. It's one of the Yeah, it's on, on the, the Blu-ray. Blu-ray. Yeah. So and it, it has portholes in the windows, so yeah. <laughs> it had too much light in it. But I, I did it, sprayed it green, the army green, because Ridley kept saying it's got to be like a space truck. 
and we made it oily and stuff and there was the look and Ridley just said this is it so then I and the only change was we took away all the windows which I think was needed because you wanted that claustrophobia yeah and so I just got to work with an army and I, I said they said what do you need and I said I need the prop team that I had on Star Wars because I've trained them all I, I, we don't have time to train them now it, again it was a short prep period so mm -hmm. they hired Joe Dipple and his team they came down I'd hired a specialist prop maker who never done it before either but he had the same engineering and sculpt abilities Roger Shaw he came on board and I got a small team around me and started them dressing and so I didn't have to explain to Joe again how to do it we just ran miles of, of PVC tubing down the down the Nostromo corridors and then with Nick Alder's guy I went to him and I got two two people Dennis Lowe and uh, Guy Hudson to build mm -hmm. panels of switches because I said I'm going to need hundreds of these to put into the panels on on the side. Mm -hmm. So they said, "Okay, we'll do you three. We'll do a 2001 like a really gritty one, and then a kind of middle one." Right. And of course, I chose the really gritty one, and they all hung their heads because <laughs> that was the <laughs> most work because it had so many switches and pieces on it. They just got to work like an assembly plant building those, and then. And then, of course, they say, well, Roger, we're putting you in charge of the bridge because that's where we're shooting first. And uh, that was a monster. And it's, I think it's the most successful set I've ever done in my life. And I think I'm most proud of I love the Millennium Falcon hold area. But that bridge, um, especially for the actors when they came on it when they first came in to rehearse they just went into something and they just blended into it mm. not the other way around they didn't have to think they were in a working spacecraft and i was very careful because nick alder's brilliant he he made all the seats slide backwards and forwards i made every switch when you switched it a light went on or off mm -hmm. i wanted all of that and then at the end of it you know the touches i like to do i put in old coffee cups and pens and bits and pieces mm. that crews do that's what made yeah. it so lived in and i tell you you know these were low budget films that they didn't know how to do the first thing you hear and see is the the graphic lettering from the computer on the reflected on the in the helmet they didn't mm. know how to do it right right um hang on can you shut the door i'm on a podcast <laughs> and uh sorry everybody's shouting it's all right i can edit that step. bit out you can edit it out There's i can edit robots. That take out. it on the chair it's okay take it so let me move <laughs> sorry Chaos. that's all right that's all right <laughs> usual i can get it around the corner thank you so much that's all right so i'll carry on with you upstairs You're and right. um yeah we're back okay so so um <clears throat> I, I had done some art um, kind of demonstrations and we used to have eight mil footage and we projected it. A mate of mine were doing it from art school. So I suggested this and said, maybe we could do that. And so they got me some equivalent of what computer readout was it was very primitive in those days they put it onto 16 mil film got me a 16 mil projector and i literally handheld it 
really? until I could get the focus, until I got it sharp on there and Ridley filmed it, and that's it. Wow. Now, there's, it's a shame there's nothing on the Blu-ray that shows you with your little projector. <laughs> it's just standing out of shot. Yeah, it probably is there. We wanted for the book, I, I wanted Fox, you know, they, they demand $500 every half hour to sit and go through their archive. And there's thousands of photographs, but right. we just couldn't afford it. So uh, one day I'll do it. I'll go and look because yeah. there's <laughs> the, the track around the set at the beginning yeah. That brilliant, like Mary Celeste, really wanted some. You have to give kind of movement, and uh, it can't be still. So he, we thought of the papers fluttering on that desk. Mm-hmm. That was me. I grabbed a hairdryer, got under the set. It was like nightmare in the wood. I was squeezed <laughs> in, and I was blowing it with a hairdryer till I could see through a crack that it was right. And he filmed that. Again, I want to see the, that photo of you with a hairdryer. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably there because they took a lot of photographs. Right. I mean, to dress the bridge, um, yeah. did you return to the uh, aircraft scrapyards and had they put their prices up? Then they were still okay. It, after Alien, it was finished. They mm. realized then this was a huge business. And, and in fact, on Phantom Menace, it was so expensive, it was cheaper for Rick McCullum to fly it from Texas in a huge <laughs> plane, freight plane and fly it to tunisia that just seems london. bizarre because you know when you look at those distances london is on the doorstep of tunisia yep. compared to america <laughs> yeah and you couldn't get it anymore they bought it all up and it was on rental and it was so expensive so uh that's how he did it yeah and and it's because it is you know what your work you did on star wars and alien is so influential it's it started a an, a design aesthetic didn't it for science fiction films that they're still using today yeah no james cameron's using it they all are even mm. you know, batman they use the same techniques now to to give that real and broken down world even if it's new they still use stuff like that to make it mm. and it's i think that's why part of the reason why science fiction has got accepted and become such a huge because before that i mean when we did star wars it was you know that it was no market you know fox analyzing the film would make 12 million dollars indicative of what Mm. people thought of science fiction and i was ridiculed because i read it sometimes you know all i get was oh it's not shakespeare is it yeah. And I couldn't understand these, you know, June, the writers, brilliant writers out there writing what in fact was prophecy about our futures. Mm. Gibson, it, it, you know, it, it was like you've said before that, um, you know, uh, it, they were creating modern myth, weren't they? Absolutely. You know, yeah. and in London, I used to go Forbidden Planet had a little tiny shop in Denmark Street. Oh, I remember it well. The you original do? Forbidden Planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. You had that you, staircase going down into a cellar. You had to walk past that, and then you went in and turned left. It was a pokey little shop, wasn't it? Pokey but it was fantastic. Shop, but I yeah. could get Judge Dredd there. That was the yeah. first one, really. And uh, and before that, when I was a kid, I, I got the Eagle sent every Tuesday yep. to my house. And even though that was kind <laughs> of, it was always like you know, my favorite was kind of Dandere and, mm. and, um, the Mekon and all of that stuff. And it was too shiny for me, but, um, I, I always loved that stuff. And as you said, it's equal to King Arthur and the great myths of the past. 
they were able to translate into the great myths of the future. And that's what George has done. He's created the perfect myth. That's why the yeah. planet loves this film more than any other and any other before and since. This won't happen again. He's created something that people can identify with. And because he had the knowledge of mythology, mm. which the others didn't have before, he was able to create the perfect one. So, yeah, it's very important uh, to us as human beings yeah i think it's something that we you know instinctively need i think of course you, know, you do everyone beings. does it helps you grow up there's keys in there that help you you know we all mm. it's the hero's journey we all at some point have to make that decision where mm. you're going to go in life and you know mm. just as luke had to choose to be a farm boy and carry on or fulfill this unknown destiny that he felt mm. the yearning of same as king yeah. arthur it's same as all of these yeah very important uh, you know an, an alien is 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 a again th th there was little faith in it because it's the first r-rated science fiction film mm. and in it, i think in the hands of any other director it would not have done what it's doing now mm. And Ridley gave it that vision. He understands that gritty world of reality more than anyone. And, you know, how the crew melded into it. And I, you know, I, that's the film I know we got right mm. <laughs> in terms of the look. Oh, it's, it's near perfect for me. You know, it's a yeah. near perfect film. I, it's it, very much like Blade Run, another Ridley Scott film. I can yes. just, I can't fault it. I, I, no, it I hasn't know, I dated at all. And you can just watch it now and it, everything about it just still holds up everything. Yeah. I, I was worried. They asked me to comment on the Blu-ray when it came out. They sent me a copy and I, I was very nervous when I put it in because it, got so sharp in detail and i thought oh it's all going to sharp scrap and everything but it didn't and i yeah, know you when... know what each bit is that's that's, <laughs> that's the problem with you you know that what that bit is and what that yes. bit is you know <laughs> yeah but it, it it melded i know when george was digitizing because he said on the first one it was a horror that you know when he saw it digitally altered you could even see the gaffer gaffer tape that stuck around <laughs> Darth Vader's collar to hold mm. it together. And you could see everything. He had to go back and um, repair so much stuff in those films once that detail was showing on a, on a digital, on a Blu-ray. That didn't happen with Alien. No. So I think that dark claustrophobic interior and the way we clustered the interior and painted it army green and then each piece in there, we put little letter set numbers on like they do on a plane. Each one has mm. a number. I mean, all of this it's detail you may or may not see, but it's in the DNA of the film. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you you said earlier, you know, that you prefer your work on the bridge of the Nostromo over, you know, the interiors of the Falcon. Would you also say, do you think that's maybe one of your the favorite effect sequences you've worked on in film? Well, the uh, um, I think, yeah, I mean, those two stand out for me. I just because of the lack of money and everything done for real, and there's no CGI, nothing mm -hmm. in either of those films. So we had to make it happen. Um, I think one of I think one of my favourite sequences, though, if I look at it generally, it's on the Phantom Menace, and I had to shoot a lot of the pod race. You were second unit director. 
won't you? Yeah, that? I, yeah. You George might, had right. me directing Second Unit on uh, Return of the Jedi, and I we we had two crews shooting side by side. He only he only allowed himself twelve weeks to shoot Phantom Menace, and really it was a twenty four week shoot. Right. So we shot side by side. I got a lot of the pod race to do all the crowd reactions and the um, the commentators and a lot of the stuff in Tunisia in the valleys and things. We were shooting a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I mean, just seeing how techniques have changed and the way uh, that film is amazingly um, progressive in terms of CGI. When I look at what that pod race became, it's a mm. brilliant sequence. And also Watto, he, he was like, he's one of the CGI creatures that transformed CGI into mm-hmm. the future. There was a big change with Phantom Menace. but And the pod race, you know, and then I, I don't know if you know, but some of the huge crowd scenes, I would shoot crowds and duplicate crowds to put together in the foreground. In the background, they use Q-tips, hundreds yeah. of them. There was an Painted. exhibition in London like like 10 years ago and they had the, um, you know, the arena stands there. And, yeah, they just painted uh, yeah. uh, cotton buds. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's the magic of cinema. That's why it's alchemy. It's why I call my book Alchemist. It, mm. It's it's alchemy of what you see from what it existed as. And uh, I think that sequence probably stands out for me as a landmark there's a lot of others, but um, it was pretty special when I saw it. I, it's an amazing piece of cinema. Mm-hmm. So that one, you know, and I, I you know, I, when you look in history, seeing a new hope, seeing the trench um, battles, mm-hmm. and the Millennium Falcon that we built and rising up. I mean, it's it seeing that for the first time is probably the most impressive thing that's ever happened to me. Right. Right. Because suddenly there was the future. (laughs) Yeah. So did those, you have a feeling of that when, when when you saw star Wars for the first time, did you, you were aware, right? Everything's changed now. Yeah, yeah. We saw it in Dominion Theatre. It was a a crew and um, press screening in December. They showed it. And just the buzz in this cinema, I can't tell you. When that first (laughs) ship comes overhead, everybody was like rising. You could feel the audience like became something changed. Right. (laughs) And I, I, you know, George said in front of me once to rick mccullum that there were only five people who stood by his side on 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 star wars and i was one of them and it's true i did i I loved it every minute of it and we were like mates together having spent so much time together Mm. before the film started and john barry was a huge support to george huge Mm. and the art department when really no one else was they were doing their jobs and we got it made but no one was believing this was anything other than a nine-year-old fairy story and science fiction to boot which was never going to see the light of day mm-hmm. i knew because i i studied mythology and i knew mythology and it got me through my youth i knew there was something under the surface here and you know in the moment i read laser sword we call them them but the lightsaber I thought, yeah. uh, here we go. Here's a Scalibur in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the once and future king come yep. 
coming up to date, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. Well, I, I think I've taken up enough of your time today, Roger. Okay. Um. Um. So, yeah, I, I would just like to thank you very much for your time. Not at all. It's a pleasure, and you know, I love this world, and I'm in part of it. I'm, I wrote the book. We're now getting the finance to do a major documentary, not making Star Wars, but um, the five people, so that's me, John Dykstra, um, the Ralph McQuarrie, who's the unsung hero of Star Wars, who mm. painted this universe, John Barry and Ben Burt, we all, with no money, created what had never been existed before <laughs> when outside a convention. And it interests me. I know myself, I've had to analyze writing the book and I knew where it all came from. And I was always thinking outside the box, but these other men, they were fulfilling dreams that they'd had with no money and making things happen that they believed in. And I think that's incredibly interesting to follow. And in fact, they're all on their own hero's journey as much as George was and as much as the others. So I'm bringing all them to the screen in a big way. And I'm going to animate, we're going to animate some of Ralph McQuarrie's paintings into live action, telling the stories of how he wow. found the inspiration. And uh, I want to go back to the ruins of the cantina exterior and walk through and find an old rusting r2d2 and, and then find the lightsaber <laughs> and bring it out of the ground and it'll light up and do fascinating stuff and then i want to go into the world because elon musk calls his rockets the falcon he was so blown away with star wars mm -hmm. richard branson yeah. uh, stephen hawking the dalai lama even i mean the world and then to ordinary people having Weddings and collectors and yeah. children painting. I want to bring this all world into one documentary feature to, sh to kind of illustrate what this is all about, really. And it's it, all of my talks and discussions and the book. The hundred percent, the book. My my feedback is it was inspirational yes. and that's how i started out to do it i didn't want to write i did this look at me how great i am i didn't want to do that i wanted a blow-by-blow -blow account of how we made a film that was impossible at the time and so i think i need to pass this on mm. because it's um more and more, I get so many requests for help and all this stuff. So I think that's going to do it. And then I'll try to lecture and I'll try to do mentoring with it as well. On all levels, acting and uh, making, filmmaking, everything. I think it's all very important. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'll be looking forward to that. <laughs> all the best for it, Roger. Okay, and as I thank say, you. Thank th I I'm trying to get my head round. I don't know what the 18-year-old me would have made, you know, sitting right. in the cinema watching Alien up on the big screen, thinking that sometime in the future right. he'd be talking to somebody who's largely responsible <laughs> for what he's falling in love with. So yeah. thank you ever so much Not for your at time all. today. It's my Richard. pleasure. Yeah, and if you need anything else, don't worry. Just, just you, you know where I am. Smashing. Okay. Cheers then, Roger. Thanks Cheers. a lot. Bye. Bye-bye.